Emergency medicine will always have some negative experiences for people. Learning on the job, a dangerous way to learn. Never mind, I'll call the surgeon myself. Physicians have to know what they don't know. At the bottom of my soul, I'm a doctor. Hello, welcome. Rick Bicotta, Greg Henry, coming to you with the February 2014 issue of Risk Management Monthly. This is a very special issue in that we have a guest, Dr. Bruce Fagel, who actually practiced emergency medicine at San Gabriel Hospital. He left shortly before I got there, so our paths didn't cross, but everybody know, knew Bruce. And uh, Bruce got out of medical school in uh, 1972, two years after I did. That was the Mesozoic age. Uh, was penicillin still invented then? I, I don't recall. But You're still using leeches, though, weren't you, Rick, at that point? Yeah. Bruce, uh, welcome aboard. I appreciate your, your taking the time to do this with us. You are the uh, second plaintiff attorney we've had on in seven years, but certainly the only one that's ever done emergency medicine and the only one that's ever uh, been a physician. Bruce, I went out to your website. Uh, pretty impressive, actually. You're among the listed in the best lawyers in America. You've been uh, written up in the National Law Journal, Medical Economics, USA Today, LA Times. Your uh, group has won over $1 billion in awards and settlements, uh, including the largest malpractice award in California, which I have to ask you about this. It's $460 million. Uh, did, that, did that get upheld? Uh, that was a... Um a verdict under California law, which requires the jury to make a finding of total future dollars. And several other states, uh, including New York, uh, have similar requirements. Uh, and when you have a child who, in, in this particular case, uh, uh, was born with a, a very serious um, uh, catastrophic injury at birth, uh, requiring 24-hour uh, nursing care, but actually had a uh, uh, normal life expectancy, and to this day is still alive at 26 years. Um, and you calculate what the total future dollars would be over uh, a normal life expectancy. That's how you get up to that $460 million number. Uh, the actual present cash value of that back in 1991, um, when the uh, verdict was reached, uh, was uh, $20 million which was still, which is still today the largest in California uh, as a present cash value uh, amount because California has uh, caps on non-economic damages at $250,000. So everything other than $250,000 was economic damages, mostly for the cost of ongoing medical care, primarily round-the-clock nursing care. Well, that's still a huge number. We... Uh came up with a list of questions to help us go through this and try to get as much uh, specific information out of uh, Bruce as we can. But I would like to just do a little aside here. I saw you've written at least 20, 25 articles on various aspects of the medicine and, and law. And one of the things I was interested in is where you think this issue of caps is going in California. I know it's being attacked, I think, I think actually this year, but what effect has, do you think that this has had in terms of patients and getting fair settlements? Well, it's had a, a tremendous impact because with the limitation of non-economic damages, uh, there are cases involving individuals 
where there are no economic damages or no substantial economic damages, primarily the, the death of a child, mm -hmm. uh, the death of a uh, elderly individual who's right. not supporting anyone else. Those cases are basically have a value of $250,000. And the Rand Corporation in California did a study a number of years ago, which showed that the main impact that the cap has had is in those types of cases. And what it's basically caused is fewer of those cases are being filed. The economics of law practice uh, require attorneys to invest not only their own time, but their own money in the case. And uh, the cost for discovery, for depositions, uh, for uh, medical records, uh, and primarily for experts has gone up with inflation over the last uh, 38 years. And so the cost of pursuing these kinds of cases has gone up almost fourfold as inflation has increased over 38 years, but because the cap was never indexed to inflation, uh, the recovery is still limited to the same $250,000. So many of those cases that were economical in 1975 to 1980 timeframe now are not simply uh, worth the, the time and effort and financial risk that attorneys have to take in these cases. And so a lot of individuals who have simply non-economic damages claims uh, are unable to pursue those claims because they obviously can't hire their own attorney and pay uh, an hourly rate and attorneys cannot afford to take those cases. So that's where it's primarily had its impact. There is a, an effort now that you made reference to in California. There is a, a ballot initiative which is currently in the process of gathering signatures necessary to place it on the ballot. That's required by, uh, I think, March 25. If that require, uh, gathers the required number of signatures, it will be on the ballot in November of this year, which would, among other things, index the non-economic damages cap to inflation, which would, bringing it up to current dollars, would bring it up to a little over a million dollars. So that would have a significant impact uh, across the board. Obviously, it's going to be hard fought. It's going to be challenged by the medical association, the hospital association. They've always, already raised a, a great deal of money uh, to challenge uh, and oppose it. So it's going to be hard fought. But interestingly, the uh, initiative has two other set parts to it, which are part of a overall patient safety initiative uh, which call for random drug testing of physicians, similar to what occurs in other industries, as well as specific drug testing when there is an adverse outcome, mm. uh, similar to what happens if there's a train crash or a bus crash or something. The first thing that is done is the driver is tested for drugs or alcohol, and in certain cases, they find that's the, the underlying culprit. So it's done a, a lot to prevent these kinds of problems. So that's all part of the same initiative. And uh, actually, the patient safety aspects of the initiative obviously are much more appealing to the public than the raising of the cap. Right. Greg, thoughts? Um, only one thought, and that is for all of our listeners, and uh, Bruce, you can understand that, we tend to have a fairly conservative group of listeners who are all doctors, or the vast majority are doctors. Uh, the last time we did a plaintiff's attorney, Rick and I got called every name in the book, didn't we, Rick? Uh, well, you, you know. know communist sympathizer, <laughs> which if you know me, uh, it would be the last place I would be. Uh, let us Let us preface this by saying, uh, Bruce is here to help us and to help you look at your practice. He will naturally have a point of view. And one thing I've learned, having 
looked at 2,250 cases is that uh, that point of view is not necessarily held by the physician community. And uh, we all just have to recognize that. So let's all be friends here. Ricky and I are not out to slap anybody around or hurt anybody. We're here to avail ourselves of Dr. Fagel's knowledge. Well, actually, when I first uh, contacted Bruce, I said, Bruce, how can we put you out of business? But I, he said, I don't think you have to worry worry about that. Uh, well, it's like in emergency medicine. If if intelligent uh, intelligence breaks out in the country, I'm ruined. But the chances of that happening are so small that I don't think telling people the right way to live is ever going to put any of us out of business. Uh, law and medicine are very similar that way, that uh, we tend to live on other people's absolutely bad choices. But uh, so, Bruce, let's start off with a question here, one that both you and I are interested. What are the most common serious diagnoses that result in ED-related suits in your experience? Okay, well, let me start with a little bit of, of the statistics. There's 136 million ER visits a year uh, compared to 4 million deliveries of, of babies. Uh, the kinds of problems that can occur from uh, an injury to a child at birth are, are usually much more dramatic, long-term and catastrophic than a, a lot of the things that occur from uh, mistakes or errors that occur in, in the emergency room. Uh, but with 136 million emergency visits, there is certainly a large patient load where things can happen. Now, statistically, anywhere from 37 to 55% of medical malpractice claims involving emergency physicians are diagnostic errors, with heart attacks being the number one uh, diagnostic error, and it's also the one that's obviously most serious in terms of potential outcome. Uh, after uh, heart attacks, uh, then the next list is fractures, which obviously are less consequential, although in specific cases uh, can equally uh, cause long-term consequences. Appendicitis, which uh, still is a diagnosis that's missed, but statistically uh, it's accepted within the medical community that anywhere from 10 to 20% of patients who undergo an appendectomy, they find a normal appendix. So that's part of the, the diagnostic uh, dilemma that's involved. Uh, but with that number of potential cases, uh, there are obviously a, a lot of issues that can occur in emergency medicine. Now, the other statistic that's important for emergency physicians to understand is similar to other types of cases, about 7% of emergency medicine uh, malpractice cases go to verdict, of which 85% result in a defense verdict. And that's similar to what occurs in other types of malpractice cases, which basically is an indication from my perspective that the system works because most of the cases that go to verdict uh, where there are experts on both sides who are equally matched in terms of their opinions about what constitutes the standard of care or what is a breach of the standard of care or more importantly what ends up being the more interesting part of, of these kinds of cases, which is causation, uh, that if the jury cannot determine which side of the balance between these experts can be shown to, to a, a preponderance of the evidence, if they're both equally balanced, the law requires the jury to find against the plaintiff. 
Uh, and that's why in many of these cases, the uh, 85% result in defense verdicts, it's because those cases are simply ones where there are experts on both sides. Uh, and it's usually not a matter of the defense experts being any better than the plaintiff's experts. It's just that in many situations, the jury cannot determine who's, quote, telling the truth, which is not really the issue. The issue is uh, what is, constitutes the standard of care, how believable or reasonable are the experts' opinions, and if the jury can't determine uh, who wins, the defense automatically wins those. Now, the other statistic that's important is 29% of medical malpractice cases involving emergency physicians result in settlements prior to, to a jury verdict, which is similar to the overall 25% in most medical malpractice cases. That means roughly a, a quarter to a third of medical malpractice cases that are filed against emergency physicians have enough merit that after they're reviewed and evaluated by defense experts and the defense insurance carriers, they don't wanna risk those cases going in front of a jury and those cases settle. That indicates that there is a significant proportion of cases out there uh, where there is both merit and justification to the case. I mean, if we, if in medicine, if there was a 29% risk of something occurring, no matter what the procedure was, that would be very, very significant and something that every patient would be told about up front. So if 29% of medical malpractice cases are settled, uh, that indicates that the profession itself acknowledges that there's a significant problem out there. Well, it certainly acknowledges that on an economic basis, it may be smarter to settle a case than even go through all of the steps taking it and then take a risk at trial. I, uh, having, having been involved in a lot of cases, a lot of lawsuits, uh, the three or four I've, been, I've actually testified in where we lost I couldn't have predicted those from the ones in which we won. So sometimes it, it is difficult to know the merits of cases. I want to I want to ask you about something which I'm now seeing as a trend. And I know, Bruce, when you were practicing, you wouldn't have seen this because it didn't exist. And that is the use of mid-levels of physician assistants, which uh, just this week, I've got two sitting here on my desk where the doctor is named only because he was there working. The case wasn't shown to the doctor. It was released by the physician assistant. What are you seeing on these cases? And do you think this is the fertile field, which is now going to be uh, farmed by the plaintiff's community? Well, I don't think the plaintiff's community necessarily farms anything. Uh, we might catch what comes through the, uh, uh, the stream, but uh, we're not really farming. It's not the same kind of situation as occurs when there is a, a mass tort or a plane crash where the circumstances suddenly create a, a large number of potential cases. Medical malpractice cases, as distinct from many other types of personal injury cases, are individual one-at-a-time cases almost anecdotal in their nature. They cannot necessarily be compared to the kinds of other things that, that, that occur from patient to patient. So when we talk about where nurse practitioners and physician assistants fit into the system, it's because medicine and especially emergency medicine has changed over the years and so has healthcare. What we are seeing today is that, uh, and we did even in my year, is that very often uh, the emergency room was the entry port for, for patients to get into the system. And that has simply 
magnified and amplified many times over. And certainly now with the Affordable Care Act, uh, there are a lot more patients coming into this system who, because they now have access to health insurance, can now get medical care. The problem is there is a physician shortage. There is a, certainly a physician shortage in specialties, and it's hard for patients to find a physician. So how do they get into the system? They come to the local emergency room. So emergency rooms will always have to play a role in treating patients with all varying degrees of problems. And the essence of triage uh, is the most important thing for emergency rooms to deal with. And the physician who is, is working in an emergency room, uh, in many cases, has a legal responsibility for that nurse practitioner or that physician assistant because of the nature of the licensure for the physician assistant and the nurse practitioner. They, they may work in an emergency room, but they must work under a physician's license. Uh, and uh, uh, different hospitals, depending upon who contracts with the emergency physician, uh, will have varying uh, written policies that are very important in controlling the actions and practice of these mid-level practitioners who serve and will serve a vital role, especially as more patients come into the system. They're the ones who have to see the non-emergency patients who come in the door because they have no other way to get to a doctor or to get to healthcare. So triage is, is more important today than it ever was. Now, once a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant sees a patient, they have to know what they don't know. This is the most important principle that exists today. It existed when I was in medical school uh, and all the way through is that physicians have to know what they don't know. Now, it's easy when you're in a specialization, surgical or medical subspecialty, and when emergency medicine became a specialty, which goes back to when uh, Rick and I entered the field in, in the early 1970s, when emergency medicine became a special field, basically what emergency physicians were now capable of doing is saying, hey, there is a role for individuals who have to know a little bit about everything but know most about how to save someone's life in that first golden hour when they come in. And that's really where emergency medicine is still today. It serves a vital and essential role for patients who really and truly have an emergency. The problem is that there are so many other patients that come into an emergency room who do not per se have an emergency. They're the ones who can be cared for adequately, appropriately, 99% of the time by a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant. But the physician assistant or nurse practitioner have to know how to recognize that 1% that's over their head and they need to call for assistance of a physician uh, and that's where they get into trouble. And the physician has still a legal responsibility. And, and you, know, you talk about physicians being named in lawsuits where they didn't even see the patient. The issue in many of those cases is under the guise of the hospital policy and the, and the written procedures that they have, that patient should have been seen by the emergency physician. So it's simply part of the practice of emergency medicine. And many things that occur in medical malpractice are not personally directed towards a physician doing malpractice. It has more to do with system errors and communication problems where a physician may never even been involved, but the issue is they should have been. Right. Yeah, this is how it comes up more and more now because it all focuses on the supervision by physicians. And, you know, I've heard of situations where, and I don't, I think it's frankly pretty common where 
the physician who's working the shift at the end of the shift goes and signs a bunch of charts. And it was like, what does that signature on those charts mean? It doesn't, I don't, I can't think it means very much of anything. They didn't see the patient and the, the, the chart that is there is a self-serving chart. It creates the illusion that this is the diagnosis when that they just got it wrong. And so more and more of these are relating to supervision issues. And I can tell you that emergency physicians, you're right, they can't see everybody. And in some places, and in some large groups, 30% of all of the ER patients are seen by advanced practice clinicians, as uh, they prefer to be called. And when you're talking about that huge percentage, and the other thing too, is that many hospitals or departments just don't have them seeing the quote unquote, minor cases, they can see anybody in the department, although generally in those situations, a physician will see the patient as well, and which, which is what we did at San Gabriel. We saw every soul who came in, largely because our doctors were old. Bruce, you remember Ed Colby, and I'm sure you remember Rad Roseborough. Those guys are as yep. old as we are. And so <laughs> the idea of using a mid-level it was kind of foreign to us. We didn't know, you know, how we felt about it. So we ultimately took the position and I uh, that we would see everybody too, but they, they would facilitate our work. And I know a group, frankly, that has 60-year contracts, and that is still their position. They've taken a very conservative position on the use of these people because Greg is right. We're hearing more and more and more cases. And what happens is they start pointing fingers at each other. The PA says, well, I told the doctor, and the and doctor says, well, I never saw the patient. And they, they turn on each other because um, they're both uh, now getting sued, and one wants to justify their precision versus the other. Well, the other thing is we, we speak glibly about uh, minor cases. The real problem is knowing which ones are minor cases because when you look at the chief complaint, Let's say the chief complaint is headache, which is one of the five most common chief complaints in emergency medicine, headache. Well, is that a subarachnoid hemorrhage? Is that their 10th migraine? Uh, some of this requires some experience and judgment. And sometimes we try and dumb it down too much. There are patients who should be passed on. And, you know, I, I also work where I saw everybody I put my name on their chart. I went in and at least shook hands with them, said hello. And, you know, after 38 years of this, you get a certain sense of who's actually sick and who isn't. This is going to be a brave new world for us. And it's probably not what, what all the three of us grew up with back in the late 60s, early 70s. And, and we're all going to have to learn to function with that. Well, Rick, you had a question there, didn't you? About well, no, I, I agree with Bruce that th these folks are going to be absolutely essential in the dealing with the 33 million additional people who are going to be insured by Obamacare. And half of those are going to be Medicaid, but the other half are going to have traditional, you know, Blue Cross kind of insurance, the stuff that we consider to be a good insurance. The other thing I wanted to point out is that the training of these PAs and NPs is, is primarily, you know, family medicine, primary care. They There are no formal training programs or there's a handful, but it doesn't in any way uh, impact the huge number of PAs and NPs who are working in emergency departments who are learning on the job, a dangerous way to learn. Yes, I'm sure their groups provide them some training to the extent they can, but there are no, of any consequence, special training programs where somebody would take six months or something like that 
to learn emergency medicine. So it's it's kind of a dangerous business because you don't ne necessarily know what you don't know. Well, one thing that emergency medicine shares with all other types of medical practice in terms of medical malpractice cases that we see, especially catastrophic injuries, the number one problem that exists as a system-wide problem in all hospitals is communication. Whether it's communication between physicians, communications between nurses, communication between nurses and physicians, that is across the board. But emergency medicine has two separate things or additional areas of communication that are unique to emergency medicine. And they're, they're there because the emergency rooms are staffed by physicians on a specific hour basis, whether it's an eight hour shift, a 12 hour shift, a 24 hour shift, overlapping shifts. Physicians come in, they take over patients who are somewhere in the diagnostic uh, chain of, of testing, evaluations, whatever. And when they leave, there are patients who have yet to have been fully evaluated. And the handoff from one physician mm -hmm. to another is always a, a, an issue. The, hand, the handoff of the patient from leaving the emergency room to go back into or referred into the rest of the, of the healthcare system. Those are things that are more unique to emergency medicine and compound the communication problem. I mean, Rick, you made reference to the fact that, you know, you, there are cases where, uh, medical malpractice cases where the nurse practitioner and the physician will say, well, you know, we'll have, go at each other. I forget your, your, your phrase, but basically uh, you're going to have uh, the nurse practitioner saying, I told the physician something, the physician saying they didn't tell me anything. That's not unique in, in medicine. That is across the board in all sorts of parts of the hospital. But in the emergency room, you have this unique situation that you don't have in the rest of the hospital where one physician signs off to another physician and the patient is in between their evaluation. Mm -hmm. And we've had many cases where the second physician doesn't really go back and reevaluate the patient. The patient's condition somehow changed between when the first physician left the patient. There, there's always a, an issue when, when someone comes on, the, there's a, a, a communication from the leaving physician saying, well, here's where I'm at with these several patients. And they indicate, well, this patient's probably going to go home. Very common circumstance. You want to basically, I, I know when I worked in, in emergency rooms, I, I always felt better if, when I left at the end of my shift, uh, all my patients were, were resolved and I left a clean slate to the physician coming yeah. on. That's almost impossible. Yes, uh, yes. And, and the physician coming on suddenly inherits what potentially may be a mess and, and could very easily be a patient who has an evolving situation. Uh, many patients come to an emergency room. Dr. Henry mentions a headache. You know, is that an evolving subarachnoid hemorrhage? Is it a, a blood clot, an ischemic stroke? Is it a TIA? There are many things that physicians see in an emergency room where the patient's condition will evolve over the several hours the patient is there. And especially these days where it's hard to get patients admitted to the hospital because the ICU is full. Even, even the regular medical uh, floor may not have available beds. So patients are kept in the emergency department for hours, sometimes days, uh, until they can be admitted to the hospital. And those patients' conditions will change and evolve. And yet one physician feels, well, he's made a diagnosis, he's turned it over to somebody else, and nothing else needs to be done. So part of emergency medicine is that you, you can't pigeonhole it. It, it. It's an evolving situation with patients. You have to be able to recognize that certain number of patients 
are not truly emergency patients that simply need a referral within the medical care system. Other patients at the other end of the uh, spectrum need emergency care, including cardiology, neurosurgery, you know, things that, that emergency physicians are the, the way into the system for those patients who otherwise would die. Well, you know, there's a big push by the Joint Commission to substantially f- focus on these transitions between either going from one floor to another or one provider to another, and because they view this as a major patient safety issue, as you have pointed out. And in emergency medicine, you're right. We have lots of what we call pass-ons. And um, it's real easy to kind of uh, make mistakes during these, uh, and especially the way pass-ons are done. They're done very informally. Joint Commission would like a more formal process. Here's where we are. Here's what we're doing here. And the other thing is, is Bruce, I thought you know, and you were you, you you saw this when the nurses would do report, they would just all get around the chart rack. Nobody went in to say, This is nurse so and so, they're gonna be taking over, or this is Mr. Jones kind of thing. And when when towards the end of my tenure at San Gabriel, we started this thing where the doctors would go in it and, and introduce the oncoming doctor. This is Dr. So-and-so, he's he's a great doctor, he understands we're waiting for the CAT scan, all of that kind of thing. I thought it was very unreasonable to, to have one doctor leave and the other doctor come on and say, well, the other doctor's off shift now. I'm taking over. I mean, yeah, to take, you know, well, that's ridiculous. To take points from both of you, I, throughout my career, I always went in. I, w- I didn't want to be handed anybody by saying, well, there's a guy in that room. I went in and saw everybody with the doc. And for certain things, particularly abdominal pain, you'd be amazed at the number of times I took someone in and we both felt the belly and the belly had actually changed from that time. You know, I, I remember going in one time with a, one of the younger docs, and I just put my hand on there and said, well, it's not, we don't know yet. I put my hand on. It was clearly peritonitis and rebound. And I just looked at him and said, never mind, I'll call the surgeon myself and take care of it. But, uh, you know, the last thing I want is to have somebody in a room who I haven't seen. The other thing, it's incredibly rude to a patient who you show up now, no one's introduced you. They say, yeah, the other guy went home. Well, you know, that's not terribly conducive to uh, the patients feeling comfortable or confident in the system. Although there's another version of that that says, well, if the CAT scan comes back negative, you can send them home. Man, talk about a trap. Uh, That's one. Bruce, let me ask you, you mentioned uh, how crowded things are becoming. Do you think that crowding is a, um, and the failure to address crowding by the CEO or the physicians who are staffing the department or whoever is a um, element of a negligence in a malpractice case because uh, the hospital has chosen not to adequately staff or the physician group has chosen to not to adequately staff. Is that, do you think that that is something that could be used as a, a point of attack in these cases? Absolutely. The nature of medicine and healthcare in this country has changed dramatically over the last 35 years since all of us, or 40 years since all of us were in medical school. There are now more for-profit hospitals and consolidation of hospitals Mm -hmm. with for-profit groups coming in and taking over. And it creates a more efficient system from the top looking down in terms of the economics of healthcare. But what it does at an individual level, it ends up with cost-cutting measures 
that when there is a catastrophic or, or an adverse outcome to a patient that can be traced back to a cost-cutting measure, jurors are extremely unsympathetic and if not angry at that kind of situation. We've had cases involving uh, emergency medicine problem, uh, issues where we come to find out that, and, and very often in for-profit hospitals, where they've cut back the staff to where the nurse who handles the triage is also the charge nurse. And anytime you double up people, you end up with each of them doing half a job. You find out uh, that hospitals uh, look at their statistics and figure, well, cost of CAT scan is the um, technician, and we don't really do a lot of CAT scans between midnight and 6 a.m., so we'll just have the technician on call, and very often that person is an hour away. And a patient comes in who needs a CAT scan emergently, and you find out the reason it can't be done is simply a cost-cutting measure. Those are all things that expose the hospital, whoever is making those decisions up the corporate ladder, to ultimate responsibility. And those are issues that jurors understand perfectly well. They may not understand causation. They may not understand medical judgment, standard of care, but they understand when there's not enough people to take care of a patient in a hospital when there should be. Well, you know, the reason I ask that is because we have a national reputation of making patients wait. And in a response to that, I don't know if you've seen them, they got billboards up now that basically tell you the waiting time uh, for emergency department. No other business that I know of talks about their yep. waiting time. We have such a bad reputation with the implication being that <clears throat> many, many ERs are dangerously overcrowded. And, you know, I'm of the view, frankly, that if the CEO's bonuses were related to throughput and not being crowded, they would fix that. But but we've gotten used to it. It's, it's kind of like it's okay. It's like it appears to be an unsolvable problem, which is obviously not the case. Yeah. Well, the, the billboards in Vegas say you're seen in 30 minutes or double your money back. I mean, it's it's amazing the kind of competition and the kind of marketing that's been going on in emergency departments lately when somebody cry, uh, figured out, hey, we actually do make money on a lot of those patients, and it's it's not such a bad thing. Whenever an administrator says to me, well, we're losing money on the emergency department, uh, I just sort of laugh because the, the answer is, if you're busy, uh, unless you're an idiot, uh, if you've got Medicaid, if they've got this or that, we will make some money on those patients. And well, that's just not right. Half the 40 to 50% of the admissions come through the ER. The uh, the charges are <laughs> astronomical, kind of we're in the rob and the rich to pay for the poor business. Bruce, let me ask you about guidelines. There's a big push now for everybody to have guidelines about this and guidelines about that, particularly one example is that business about TPA for stroke. Have you seen the use of guidelines attacking physicians or supporting physicians in the setting of a malpractice suit? Well, most guidelines by their nature have to cover large statistical populations. So they're always going to need interpretation Egg. is does that guideline apply to this particular patient? And almost without exception, you can have two experts disagree about whether or not that guideline applies to a particular patient because they never match up exactly. So you have one expert saying, well, the most important parts of the guideline do apply to that patient. And another expert say, yeah, but all these exceptions are the reason it doesn't apply. So 
they can only go so far. They're obviously helpful. I mean, we utilize whatever exists in the practice of medicine to help substantiate and prove our case if we're going to claim that there was negligent care that resulted in the injury to a patient. Uh, we have to start with, with the basis of medical practice. And, and the law follows medicine in that regard. Jurors are instructed that judgment is not negligence, that just because there's a poor outcome doesn't mean there's negligence. So there's so many ways that jurors are instructed that the practice of medicine across the board, and especially in emergency medicine, is not an absolute just because there's a bad outcome, there must have been negligence. We have to look at the details. <clears throat> Clinical judgment is an essential part of medical practice, and, and it can be explained. But clinical judgment, it, it, we go back to our training, because uh, that hasn't changed uh, over the years. I mean, you, you mentioned the fact that, you know, you do, both of you in, in practice, when there's a change of shift, you go around and see each patient. Uh, that's called rounds. And when we were in medical school, and it's still today, the basis of teaching involves going from one patient, having somebody present the case, somebody else discuss it, with the patient, you introduce yourself. To have handoffs in emergency medicine where the nurses all go in one room and review the charts and the doctors go off to another room and review the charts and the patients are sort of in the middle, just doesn't make any sense any more than it would make sense for that to occur in the basis of, of, of medical practice. But in terms of, of the, the, the practice of, of medicine, th there are so many things that occur that are the basis of what we tell a jury is how we evaluate the cases. We start with the fact that these are lay jurors. All medical malpractice cases are pursued in a system where there is either a lay jury or in many cases, arbitrators who are retired judges. They're not physicians. And yet they're able to understand and analyze the cases. The reason they're able to do so is because they look at the responsibilities of a physician to provide reasonable care is something that can be understood and explained. If a patient or a, a juror has that experience where they've been in a hospital and they don't understand what is being, what's happening, the communication errors that two different people are saying different things about what's going on with the patient. These are things that jurors can understand. And it goes back to how is medicine practiced? If medicine is practiced to where there are these major communication errors, jurors are going to understand that. If medicine is practiced where patients have to wait in an emergency room for eight hours before they're seen, they have a tendency to believe there's something wrong with that. If medicine is practiced to where a patient is diagnosed as having a problem that requires admission to an intensive care unit, but the ICU is, is busy, so the patient has to stay in the emergency room for the next six, eight, ten hours, only no one is checking on them like they would be in an ICU. They don't staff that, that particular unit in the ER with a nurse as they would in the ICU. Patients can understand that and jurors understand that. So there's no magic to what happens in a medical malpractice case. It, it's not so bizarre that, you know, it's these lay jurors who just give these tremendous results because they, they're sympathetic with the patient and they don't like the doctor. In fact, the reverse is true. Most patients like doctors. They like their doctors. Interestingly, when we uh, talk to jurors and examine them and, uh, before we pick them for a jury, most patients will say they like their individual doctor. They've always had good care with their doctor. If we ask them about emergency rooms, the biggest complaint patients have about medical care is waiting time in an emergency room. That's the reality out there. And so emergency medicine 
cases start out a little bit lower than other types of medical malpractice cases in front of a jury because most jurors have had bad experiences in an emergency room, and that bad experience is usually waiting time. Yeah, it's really... Uh, in in really all fairness, though, emergency medicine will always have some negative experiences for people. This is where you go when your kid, you know, you get a phone call at night and your child's been hit by a car. They come to the emergency department. When they've had a drug overdose, you come to the emergency department. When grandma has has had a cardiac arrest, you come to the emergency department. We're not Happyville. And I think we need to be a little bit honest that, unfortunately, I pass out a lot of bad news in my career. Yeah, but wait. And, like- yeah. You know, 80% of our patients go home. 80% of our patients have a sprained ankle. I stepped on a nail. My baby's got a fever. I got something in my eye. And we make our living on the people who go home, not the people who get admitted to the hospital. The small potatoes. And I'll tell you that jurors are very forgiving, if not sympathetic, to true emergencies. When there is a patient who comes in who has a true emergency situation and condition, if there's a bad outcome from that, those are very difficult cases from the plaintiff's perspective because it, the patient comes in on death's doorstep or who has a complicated medical problem or a complicated surgical problem. Jurors do not hold emergency physicians to the same standard that they would other physicians under other circumstances. So th- there's, there's kind of two different aspects to it. Jurors have their own experiences, which in all cases, they went to an emergency room, they had whatever problem they had, and they obviously survived it to be on the jury. But (laughs) what they took away from that was the long waiting time. So that's built into the juror's bias. The other end of it, though, which protects emergency physicians, is if there is a true emergency and the physician is doing everything that he can and there's a bad outcome, those cases almost will never get to a jury and have a plaintiff's verdict. Let's talk a little bit about charting because ultimately what you read is the chart. Sometime after this bad event or alleged bad event occurs. In emergency medicine, I guess in all medicine, there's this saying that if it's not uh, documented, it wasn't done. But that's really not true, is it, Bruce? No, I mean, there's all sorts of exceptions and reasons why things aren't documented. But what's happening, especially in the advent of electronic medical records, is both in the emergency room as well as in the rest of the hospital, and in in some cases it's even worse than the rest of the hospital, where we have nurses' notes that run for pages, Yes, where the nurse may have spent five minutes with the patient and 20 minutes hitting prompts to enter information on the electronic medical record. In the emergency room, the same thing happens, maybe to a little lesser degree. But in the emergency room, nuances of patients' complaints and physical findings can be extremely important. The problem is the electronic medical record doesn't allow for these kinds of nuances and often creates an inconsistency where someone has checked in the box about their initial condition, their state of mind, their all, all sorts of different evaluations that are done on the patient in the physical exam. And there's not a box for what really is going on with the patient. So they'll check the closest thing. Mm-hmm. And then later on, somebody will do examine the patient and they'll write out a history. And that says something that's a little bit different. So now you've got an inconsistency in the record that's created simply because 
that's the form that people have to use. So we, we see a lot of this at this point in time. And of course, it's much more difficult for, for the nurses, physicians, whoever to try and explain these inconsistencies because they're looking at that record months, if not years later, they don't recall the, the specifics and they can't explain why there are those kinds of inconsistencies. Jurors do expect probably more of medicine than we have a right to expect. But regarding the electronic medical record, I think most defense attorneys will admit they are creating more problems for doctors than they're solving. I've seen two big problems, Bruce, and that is when the patient comes in, they start going down a pathway. Let's say it's the chest pain pathway. And so all of those prompts come up. And yet as you get into it with the patient, it may be really abdominal pain. It may be pain that traveled for here or there. And the electronic medical record, once you're on a pathway, is a problem. The other thing is overkill. That is, with all of these preloaded systems, you can push a, the normal neuro exam, and it writes out things there that there's no way in hell you actually did. I mean, I, I look at those things and think, they don't even know what all those words mean and yet they push the button and this exam was printed out so unfortunately the electronic medical record supports one thing and that's billing i mean one thing we do know yep. is it's easier for billers to take printed records which follow a an algorithm and come up with a level five visit and everybody knows that i think if maybe if we didn't pay the way we do we'd actually have better care. That's the subject for a whole other discussion about whether or not the American system of healthcare, uh, basically being the private practice of medicine with insurance companies in between uh, making decisions about how to pay and what to do and so forth, has created an unbelievably complex system that is so complex, there is no way to fix it and all we're doing is throwing patches on it. And from my perspective, the cost of medical malpractice cases is simply part of the cost of doing business yes. for a system in which we have to accept there's going to be a certain amount of negligent errors, communication, system errors, problems that result in injuries to a patient. Now, I often thought that one way of solving the problem would be, you know, if you go into, an, go into a hospital or into an emergency room, you should be able to do what we used to do years ago. We go on a plane and buy travel insurance if a plane would, would crash. Right. They don't do that anymore. They don't do that anymore because planes don't crash anymore. But for a while, uh, a lot of people would buy travel insurance, which was only good for that particular plane fright. If the plane crashed, your your heirs would get a certain amount of money. It, it often may, it would make more sense to have insurance for that kind of purpose in hospitals than to have insurance that quote pays for their care. The whole idea of insurance that pays for care is a misnomer to start with. Right. We could spend another couple of days on that. I think that. Um, when it comes to EMRs, I think the consensus is, particularly in the older doctors where we, you know, we didn't grow up with all of these I, I this is and I that's, that they slow us down and that they add very little value because they're supposed to be able to show you, well, here's the EKG from that last visit and here's the x-ray from that last visit. But frankly, we were able to get that before. And, you know, if we needed to, we could get the person's prior visit. And 
We see now doctors sitting at computer terminals when they're, rather than being with patients. And even when the computer terminal is in with the patient, the doctors got their back to the patient because they're now become very expensive data enterers. And you're right, they don't have the flexibility of kind of adding the nuances and the nuances are everything. It's just, you know, you're right. You're, they're, you're kind of forced into filling out or you can type or, you know, in the, in the more sophisticated ones, I guess you can drag and dictate it and those kinds of things, the, the more essential parts of the record. I, gotta, I think that you pretty much covered the, the EMR parts. I've seen some nasty EMRs where there's just huge reams of paper contradicting each other because the record was, was just not a very good one. I got an off the wall question for you, Bruce. We, we're told okay. all the time that we need translators if people don't speak English. Now, when you and I were there, you know what we did. We hauled in their teenage daughter or, or a cousin or something who spoke perfect English, plus they spoke that dialect of Hindi or whatever the language was. We got through with that just fine. Now they say we can't do that anymore. We have to delay the care. We have to find a translator. And finding a Spanish translator in L.A. is not a problem, as you might imagine. Finding a Lithuanian translator in Keokuk, Iowa, may be difficult. So you go to a phone service that does it. Have you ever been involved in a medical legal case where translation was the issue? That's why the emergency doc or the doctor went down because they couldn't understand that patient's language. Have you ever seen it even? Peripherally. I mean, part of the issue with translators, we have a lot of laws that are have unintended consequences. We're stuck dealing with those situations. And in Los Angeles, there are hospitals that serve particular communities where everything is in five different languages. That's simply, you know, the, the system that we, we live in today. That's just for the staff, by the way, uh, well, let alone the patient population. Yes. Well, the bigger issue with regard to translation for, uh, that we've seen in many cases, both the emergency room and especially in, in the rest of the hospital, has to do with the number of languages spoken by the staff be it nurses, physicians, and very often the only way communication can be accurately done literally is with an electronic medical record where at least everything is attempted to put into some form of English and some common language is used with regard to, to the computer. And because when, when a nurse calls a, a physician on the phone and both of them speak a foreign language as their primary language and neither one of them is English, that's where we see communication problems really being amplified. The idea that a patient would be harmed in an emergency room because the translation wasn't appropriate, that's simply an additional problem you have to work around. It's similar to why we have specialty hospitals for children and why if a child has an emergency, it's always better for a child to be brought to a children's hospital rather than the nearest emergency room because what's wrong with the child, children's hospitals are in, are in touch with the fact that children, especially those under age two or three, can't really communicate. And what the parent is perceiving is not as important as what's going on with the, with the child. So we have you know, brought it down to that level of specialization Communication is simply part of, part of the problem. I, I think the bigger issue is when patients are discharged from the hospital, 
that's where communication <laughs> becomes important because uh, giving a patient a, 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 a discharge form and information in English when that's not their primary language uh, can create a certain number of problems just from, from, from that. And people don't understand what they were told or what's going on. Uh, I, I think it's just the nature of the fact that we uh, are a, a complex society. Uh, I think, uh, Rick, we see it far off, more often in Los Angeles, which is probably has more different yes. languages than any other part of the planet almost. And so it's simply something that that hospitals in Los Angeles have to deal with. And, and it's not just in the emergency room. They have to deal with it at all parts of the hospital. The fact that patients come in and, and as I say, I mean, walk into Cedars-Sinai Medical Center, an 1,100-bed hospital, and almost every document, every single sign, there's five different languages for everything that's printed. And that's just a start because they know that they, that's their, their base population, and then everything goes down from there. Yes, Cedars is Russian, uh, uh, Glendale is Armenian, San Gabriel is Chinese, you got Koreatown. I mean, it's like, it's, it's extraordinary, actually. I wanted to ask you, Bruce, a little bit about uh, when we get sued, a, a couple of questions. Like, wh what in your experience makes a good expert? An expert is basically a teacher to the jury. So that's part one. Uh, they're sort of the pros and cons of experts. The, the most important pro is being a good teacher. The most important con is not being an, an advocate. And unfortunately, many experts, it's simply the, the nature of human nature. When a physician gets a medical record to review, their first impression may or may not be correct. But whatever that is, they're more often going to stick with it even in the face of information that comes in later that should change their perspective, it doesn't. The true definition of an expert is someone who's going, who has special knowledge about a situation and can offer an opinion based upon certain facts. The facts are not something for the expert to determine. The facts are for the jury to determine. And a good expert, if presented with a different set of facts, should have a different opinion about standard of care or causation, whatever. Unfortunately, most experts start out on one side of the other, plaintiff or defendant, and despite evidence or information or change in facts that come in, they will not change their opinion. They will grudgingly admit certain things, but never use the term, oh, that's below the standard of care. Well, I would have done it differently or something like that. So jurors see through this. And, and, and um, in, in our cases that we present to a jury, I prefer to use experts who have testified either half and half or mostly for the defense. Because when I present them with a certain set of facts, I'm fairly certain that if they say, based upon these facts, uh, this was below the standard of care, or is it, this is the causation connection, they're going to be more believed by a jury because they're not going to come across as an advocate. You know, you were referring to, we've discussed in the past, it's called anchoring bias, where you basically glom on to a diagnosis early on in the case, whether it be a record review or a, an actual patient, and then you kind of systematically ignore everything that is goes against that a wrong initial diagnosis that you've made. There's whole kind. There's a whole list of biases that people have, but this anchoring bias is considered to be one of the major reasons for misdiagnoses. You snap to a judgment and you ignore systematically everything that disagrees with that diagnosis. 
Right. And, and when we cross-examine uh, physicians who, who have reached a conclusion with that anchoring bias, it's incredible that they can't explain what they learned in medical school about going through a subjective, objective information, an assessment, a plan, and that they came up with a differential diagnosis and tests were done to rule in or rule out various diagnoses. They basically, like they never went to medical school. They, they can't explain their plan. The most important thing that physicians need in any part of medicine is when they see a patient, they have to have a plan, a rational plan. And a rational plan, even if it turns out to be wrong and have a bad outcome, can be defended. But not having a plan cannot be defended. You know, when I've served as an expert, I did run into one law firm that did something very interesting. Whenever a, a chart arrives, by the very nature they sent it to me, one has to assume there's a problem. So I had one guy who actually sent me five cases and said, tell me which one is malpractice. And I thought that was very interesting. His firm also presents multiple chest x-rays says, just read the chest x-rays. He didn't tell us which one went with the case. And I thought that was a very interesting way to present it because looking at the x-ray that's been read two days later by somebody's radiologist, are you going to have the same kind of reading you would get from an emergency doctor that day or night? Those were, those were very thoughtful attorneys who put that stuff together. And I like it. In fact, when I have them send me things, all I want is the chart. I don't want to know what anybody said afterwards. I want to know the information given to that doctor at that moment in time and how he worked it up, how he proceeded from that moment in time. Because when you have the end of the play, when you know what happened, eh, it's all easy at that moment in time. The, the largest majority of my cases that settle, the defense attorney always tells me that they settle and have paid significant money the defense attorney has always told me they've had positive expert reviews defending the doctor or the hospital. Of you course. Can, you can buy the answer that you want to get. Yes. Exactly. What mistakes do defendant physicians make during their depositions? In a sense, getting too involved, taking it personal, which is probably the, the biggest problem that, you know, physicians are human beings. They have families. A medical malpractice claim is often something that is a, a very big deal in their lives, especially since many medical malpractice claims drag on for sometimes years. And that can be very disconcerting to a physician. And I think the best thing that they can do if they have a reasonable defense attorney. And, and the one thing that I know in California is that the defense bar for medical malpractice cases is fairly small. And there is a kind of an A level and a, a B or C level having to do with their hourly charges. And obviously the insurance companies look at cases and if they think that they can you know, resolve the case without spending a lot of money, they'll use a C level firm or whatever. The most important thing for an, a physician who is, who is sued is to make sure that they have the best attorney that they can have. They have the right to challenge or at least question the attorney that's assigned by the insurance company, 
and, and they need to be more proactive in that. Uh, they, they can't just assume that because they were assigned to a particular attorney uh, that it necessarily means anything. The insurance company is looking to save money just as much as the healthcare system or, or healthcare companies or whatever. So they have to be a little bit more proactive in who their attorney is going to be. They need to meet with their attorney early on and get an idea about where, how that attorney is going to defend the case. One of the things that often surprises me in cases, because we handle a lot of catastrophic cases, and my philosophy is catastrophic outcomes usually don't happen in hospitals unless there are multiple errors by multiple individuals. So we tend to name a number of different individuals, physicians, uh, obviously, the nurses are all employees of the hospital, so we don't need to name individual nurses. But often, we'll name a number of different physicians because you can't tell from the chart who's in charge of what. Even in an emergency room situation where a patient was there over two shifts, we can't tell from the chart which physician had more involvement with the patient or what happened at handoff. So we'll name both of them. And eventually, one will be dismissed because the last thing I want to do is to have a physician at defendant at trial who's going to be found not negligent by the jury. I'm, that doesn't help me in any way. I want to focus the jury on who I think, where I think the liability is. So one of the ways that's done, and most states have some mechanism for what's called a summary judgment, which is where a, a motion is filed with the court telling the court that based upon expert reviews and, and evaluations, there's no triable issue of fact. There's no way a jury can find a, this defendant liable under these set of facts. And that gets the, the, the individual out of the case early on. I encourage defense attorneys in my cases to do that because one of the things it does is under the law, the remaining defendants cannot point a finger back at that defendant who's no longer in the case. And that's very helpful mm -hmm. to keep the case focused because nothing's worse than a trial to have a defendant who suddenly at trial have their attorney point a finger at somebody else who is not in the case. And we can't tell the jury why they're not in the case. They were never brought in. Or they were simply dismissed. But a summary judgment prevents that from occurring. And many defense attorneys relish the idea of being able to defend the case by pointing a finger at somebody else. Uh, that, that it's kind of the plaintiff attorney in them that, that wants to say somebody else was more negligent or more liable than, than my client. So, so there are mechanisms that within the system. The problem is uh, physicians don't know about this. They have to trust their attorney. So one of the things they need to do early on is to find out from that attorney how quickly can you get me out of this case if, in fact, I think I didn't do anything wrong and you have presented this to two or three experts and they agree with my analysis? Yeah, well, I, most of the, uh, the, the good plaintiff's attorneys I know want to tell in court a simple story which goes well, the fewest number of, of uh, defendants possible, because when jurors sit and say these 28 guys are all guilty of negligence, you know what? That never goes well. If you can find a person or a small group, the story goes simply. I think those are the cases juries can relate to. The ones which I think are horrible is when you get, in, get down into multiple levels of science. We're all arguing equations on the board I, I once walked into a courtroom where they were trying a case of a nuclear reactor base splitting. And so they had an argument for, for two weeks between PhD level physicists and, and engineers. Most of the people on that jury don't even remember their trigonometry from high school. 
you think they're actually going to understand that discussion? And that that, that was horrible. Uh, simple stories go best. Here's a quickie. Um, so if I'm being sued, should I show up at the deposition of the experts that will be testifying against me? No, no. If it, really? it's gone to, yeah, if it's gone to that degree, the idea that an expert is will not um, uh, say or be as strong at his deposition because he's facing the doctor defendant it just doesn't play out. I mean, you, you'd like to think that it would, but again, that gets back to the personalization of the cases. If a physician is going to show up at the plaintiff's expert deposition, he's taking that case way too personally. One of the things that occurs in emergency medicine, and Ricky referred to this, uh, alluded to this earlier, there's often a disagreement between either a nurse and the physician or a PA or nurse practitioner and the physician about who was told what at what point in time. And in that case, the physician needs to tell his attorney up front, listen, this is what happened in the case. And that, and that attorney needs to go to the attorney for the hospital or the nurse practitioner, if they have a different uh, attorney or whatever, and talk to them early on and let them know, hey, this is a problem in this case and that it serves neither the physician nor the nurse or the nurse practitioner or certainly not the hospital to have that kind of disagreement amplified. That's the kind of case that needs to be evaluated quickly and early on. Now, one of the problems that, that exists in the nature of medical malpractice litigation is when there are multiple defendants with multiple attorneys, the usual situation is a united defense. It is an unwritten rule among defense attorneys. You do not say anything bad about another defendant. That's a trial. Prior to trial, outside of the courtroom, that's where these kinds of disputes have to be resolved. It's akin to what insurance carriers always tell doctors. Don't air your dirty laundry in the medical record. Don't say something in the medical record that somebody else should have done something differently or whatever. But the reality is that people are people. And we see late entry nurses notes, late entry notes from residents where they say, hey, they lay it out. And basically what they're saying, it ain't me that did it. This was, this was what was going on. Sometimes those are very self-serving. Sometimes those are correct and point, of, point in another direction. When those kinds of things occur, the most important thing an individual physician can do if they're sued is to explore that with their own attorney and make sure those kinds of things are resolved quickly and easily and upfront and out of court. Because once that gets into a courtroom, there's blood all over the floor. You know, it's interesting. Bruce, I'm going to uh, respectfully disagree with you on showing up at, uh, at the deposition. Uh, I've seen a lot of testimony sort of straighten up when they actually have to look the guy in the face. And I think that you're right. This is personal. It shouldn't be this personal, but it is this personal. You, you know, whatever you look at other kinds of, of lawsuits, you know, bankruptcy cases and this and that other thing, it's just business. This kind of thing goes after a doctor's soul and the basis of who they are. I mean, at the bottom of my soul, I'm a doctor. And when you insult that, you know, I, I feel bad about it. You know, most of these guys that I've dealt with, when, the, when they're found innocent, they don't feel rejoice. All they feel is relief because they've had this foot on their neck 
for four years or five years. In Michigan, it's certainly not uncommon to have, uh, uh, I've got a seven-year-old case that's going next month. And doctors do take it hard. And I, I think that um, they need ways to vent that that emotion because they'll go crazy otherwise. I mean, I and I've seen them say irrational well, things in court. If, in fact, the reason for a doctor defendant to show up at the deposition of the plaintiff's experts is for psychological benefit of the physician, then maybe. But I think that if it's gone to that degree, sitting there and listening to someone criticize what you've done and focus on it, uh, I'm not sure is going to be all that beneficial to the physician sitting there and listening to it. It's hard to listen to. It's hard enough if you're sitting in court and, and we, where you know, most uh, insurance carriers uh, require uh, their, or at least uh, encourage, if not require, their, their physician defendants to, to sit in court. Many of them will, you know, pay a stipend for the physician to be there. And they think it has a, a benefit to personalize things with the jury. Mm-hmm. But man, for that individual physician to have to sit there through all that stuff, stoic, you know, and not show emotion and response and so forth is, is awfully difficult. I'm not sure that, that any psychologist or psychologist would say, you know, that's a, a beneficial thing for that physician under those circumstances. It, it's hard enough in these cases. I mean, the idea is you have to compartmentalize. And if you're sued, if you take it personal, it's going to ruin you, even if you're ultimately vindicated, because there is no real vindication. All that happens is, you know, enough jurors vote in your favor that say it's not negligence. But to be dragged through and have uh, experts, you know, saying that what you did was, was you know, below the standard of care, but go into great detail, that doesn't really help a physician. Physicians learn from, from errors that occur. And it's far more important for a physician to look at it and say, hey, something happened here. Let me learn from it. Let me put this aside. Let me make the best of that situation and, and get on. There's a difference between different kinds of lawsuits. If the lawsuit is against a single individual ER doctor, and it's solely his analysis, his responsibility for what he did. That's a different kind of case. Most emergency medicine cases, though, don't involve just the ER doctor. They involve the nurses, another ER doctor, uh, the, the, the doctors who, who took care of the patient when the patient was admitted to the hospital. And the issue becomes, you know, who should have done what in the emergency room versus when the doc- patient got admitted to the hospital. So they're far more complex. And in those circumstances, the emergency physician would be best served by kind of isolating himself and not taking on the burden of of trying to defeat the entire case uh, if it's so complex. It it arose because of circumstances in many cases beyond the physician's control. Uh, It was uh, the hospital didn't staff the department properly enough, uh, all those kinds of issues. And if that's the issue in the case, the, the physician needs to understand it isn't personal. Obviously, that's probably something that is the most important for any physician to, who is sued is to understand that most medical malpractice cases are not directed at the physician personally. It's unfortunate the term is used as medical malpractice. Malpractice makes it personal. They're not. They're medical negligence case, and negligence most of the time, especially in catastrophic injuries, are system errors, and the physician is just one part of the system. Bruce, uh, our time is up. 
I really, really, really want to thank you for taking the time. And the, the, your passion for this really comes through. It's, uh, and I think our listeners have uh, learned a, an awful lot of stuff. And I think that your emphasis on how the jury is your tact in, in terms of trying to take laymen and trying to explain this kind of thing, I think was very insightful, as well as all of the other things that you um, referred to. This was um, uh, uh, terrific. I know that you're a busy guy, and I really, really want to thank you on behalf of all of our listeners out there. Uh, Greg, you want to wrap up? Listen, we don't have time for wine of the month this uh, month, Chief. You have to do two wines next month, okay? I, I, I'm going to whine about this. All right. <laughs> uh, thanks, Bruce. Very much appreciate it. Thank Bye. you. I enjoyed it. 